You're putting on over 200 miles, running with boats, freezing water the whole time. Just the worst environment imaginable is Hell Week. Um, when you can do that with a bunch of guys that don't mind looking at the demon and laughing, you're going to be okay. Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today is former Navy SEAL Nick Hayes. Nick spent 10 years, count them, 10 years in the SEALs and was awarded the Bronze Star. Now he's an author and public speaker. He just had a book come out called Elite High Performance Lessons and Habits from a former Navy SEAL. And this one is just pure savagery. We're talking buds. We're talking Hell Week. We're talking missions in Afghanistan. It's just awesome. I think you're really going to like it. Fan of the week goes to my man, Andrew, the whole wood hole, who's living up in Minneapolis now, land of 10,000 lakes. My good friend and longtime listener, thank you so much for tuning in, brother. Greatly appreciated here in Chicago, Illinois, the capital of wrestling. That's it. Let's get to the show. We'll see you later this week, folks. Got a few more coming to you. Peace. Nick Hayes, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Doing well, Ryan. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Me too. And I know we were talking before the interview here on how I first came to know about you. But uh, for the listeners, you're a, you were a 10-year Navy SEAL, and you're just an all-around badass in that sense. But lo and behold, you got your start as a kid, um, maybe not as a kid, but in high school, wrestling. And so... How did how did that all come to come about, and how do you think that set you up for some of the things you did later in life? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think guys who have wrestled, as soon as someone calls you a badass, you, you kind of your bones kind of shake a little bit because you've been humbled so many times. You know what comes next. You know, um, <laughs> right? That's that's one of the one of the values of, of wrestling for me coming up. But um, I was a late bloomer, so I'm not one of those guys that started. Uh, freestyle, you know, in, in third grade. Um, I, I was always athletic and playing sports, but it was always team sports. So and I mean like every sport that I could get my hands on. Um, it wasn't until I moved. So I moved actually every couple of years growing up, which is tough for a young man. Um, I think a lot of good came out of it for me. Like I, I learned how to, how to break into new groups, 
you know, how to make friends quickly, how to kind of uh, judge whether someone is going to be good or bad in my life. Um, Those are life skills that I got from a young age. But, you know, it's hard, man, when you're when you're changing your context, you're going somewhere new, you don't know anyone, people dress different, maybe they talk different. Um, And that's that's the situation I was in in sixth grade, going from sixth to seventh grade. I moved from uh, the Salt Lake area in Utah down to Tucson, Arizona. So entirely different, you know, different landscape. Everything was different. And um, I had, I was coming into to football that year, but we didn't have a team, football team in seventh grade. Um, I was leaving my team. So I felt completely, you know, just abandoned, man. Didn't know what to do with my life. And I was fortunate to, to meet a group of guys in Tucson that were pretty gnarly. They were really close group of friends, cowboy hats, cowboy boots, you know. Um, a couple of, of them had, had ridden steers and were, were looking at bulls. Really fun group of people, but they wrestled. Um, so we made friends. They invited me to the, to the wrestling team. And that's kind of how I got started. And it, it's, it's interesting, like any of your listeners that have been through a lot of moves, they understand that, that the best ways to break in with new, new groups is one, you can be funny, or two, you can, you can do athletics. Hopefully, um, you can do both, but that's, that's how I would kind of build my band of brothers when I'd move into a new spot as I'd break into athletics and it, it made it a lot easier. But that's how I came to know wrestling. Um, I think developmentally, I'm just so happy that that happened because I fell in love immediately. I was, I was a believer, you know, and I had always rolled around. I'd always, you know, boxed a little bit or whatever else. Um, but I got a chance to actually look at a craft and, and hone it. Um, and I loved it because team sports, man, you know, you always have, you do your job so that your teammate can do theirs. They do theirs right. so that you can do yours. You all come together. If you're outclassed, outmanned, then you got a teammate who's probably coming up behind you that can, that can help you out. And what I love about wrestling for the first time in my life, it's like, Hey, two people put their foot on the line and the whistle blows. No one's coming. <laughs> it's you and the other guy. <laughs> and, uh, and that for me was intoxicating. So I, I jumped in uh, full bore, and the group of guys that I was actually um, wrestling with, that was at uh, Tortolita Junior High and then Mountain View High School in uh, in Tucson. Um, three of us all became SEALs. So four of us joined the military, and then the fifth guy played uh, semi-professional baseball for a while. But so out of that out of that group, it's kind of remarkable. From junior high, three of us got all the way through um, training, um, and that was because of the foundation that wrestling provides. Wow, that's unreal! I didn't I didn't remember that story until you just said it. And how did that all shake out? So you guys go through high school together. Did they go right away to the service, and did you go to college right away? I can't remember the linearity of the story there. Yeah, so they they graduated. Well, they I mean they weren't in the same these these two brothers weren't in the same grade. One of them was a grade above. So after the younger one graduated, who was in my grade, um, they joined the military. They were sitting at um, SEAL training at Buds eating chow when um, the towers came down. So they were watching nine eleven from SEAL training. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't imagine what power that would give you when you're trying to make it through a selection, excuse me, a selection process. Um, but for me, I wow. watched it from Ole Miss. I, I went to college. So my plan, you know, I've always wanted to work my way through education. 
And so my plan was to hit that first and then come into the military, still go through SEAL training as an enlisted man because it's a lot easier to get there. There's just not as many officer spots. So I didn't, you know, it just made sense to, to get there however I could. And then I already have my degree and then maybe cross over to being an officer once I was in. So that was my plan. Um, however, in, in college, I think it was, it was like March, 2003, we invaded Iraq and, you know, I have my two at this point, like brothers to me, um, are already in their, their new guy, you know, seals and platoon and they're looking at getting out there. And I, I kind of had a little panic attack realizing that they were going to, they were going to go over there without me. So I dropped out of college and, and joined the military, you know, that day joined the Navy. Um, so that was part of why I ended up, I, even, even this thing was one of their ideas. It's kind of funny. So I meet these guys, we're wrestling. One of them says, Hey, we should, we should be seals. No one knew what a seal was, you know, back then. Um, just before all the movies and stuff, it was still pretty speakeasy. It was pretty cool. Um, so got the idea and then I dropped out of college cause I was afraid of them going without me. So had I not met uh, that group of guys, yeah, I wonder what what would be different in my life. I can definitely thank them for quite a bit because I got into SEAL training. It was probably the right time to do it. And then I ended up finishing up all the school stuff, you know, years down the road. Um, but that's kind of the path that, that led me in. I was also really well prepared. By the time I got to SEAL training, you know, two of my most trusted friends ever had uh, had been through there and, and were telling me how to prepare you know, what to look for, some of the games that they play with you, right? you know, tricks to play in your mind. Like I was adequately prepared for the training as well, which nowadays there's so many books out there that, you know, the, the young men coming in have a lot of resources. Whereas back then that didn't exist quite as much. There were a couple, um, but I had it from trusted sources, which was phenomenal. And don't you, are you doing something now where you help people who are going to, to the SEALs get ready for that? Or am I confusing that with another SEAL story I've listened to? Yeah, that's I, I have people ask me to do that a lot. Okay. There's a couple other guys out there that do that. Like Stu Smith is the one I always that's point what I'm people thinking. towards because, yeah. yeah, that guy is amazing. He, uh, like, he, he's a classy guy, and then uh, he's been doing this for a long time, so helping people prepare, especially in the swimming arena. But yeah, Stu Smith, I can't, I can't talk him up enough because he, he is the master of that trade. And so you, so 2001 hits, you're at Old Miss, fast forward two years, we invade Iraq, you're still in college, you need to decide this, that's enough, that's kind of the, the point of no return for you, drop out of school, what did your parents say, and what did your friends say? Yeah, <laughs> good question, my my parents weren't <laughs> surprised, but my, my mom still cried, you know, um, they weren't surprised, but I think they were secretly hoping that you know, I'd meet a girl over there and settle down and not join the military or something. Um, but my my friends were kind of hit and miss. My inner group of friends, like my, my closest guys out there, were like, well, yeah, dude, what took you so long? And we're really supportive. Um, and then some of the peripheral friends or people I knew from church or, you know, just the community um, wasn't as <laughs> accepting of the idea. I think that, you know, it's interesting. You know how there's just certain commonalities? Like, if, if you're, you know, every small town you go to, the people that you meet, they all, they, most of them think they're better than you because they're from there and you're not. Right. You see that everywhere you go. There's this weird kind of 
And I, I think that was the, the mentality of, of that group was like, it was a bigger dream than a lot of them could really wrap their head around. So they thought it was stupid or that I would never have a chance because they actually know me. Um, you know, so I got a lot of people kind of doubting me and I'm, I'm a little guy too. So that couldn't help. Like, I don't look like the kind of person that would play himself in the movie, you know, right. <laughs> like, right. You know, I, just standing next to, to Dwayne Johnson, you know, I would look a lot more like <laughs> oh, Kevin Hart, you know? Yeah. That's a hell of a comparison to uh, go to Dwayne Johnson. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that would be like a Kevin Hart thing because, I mean, a lot of wrestlers are smaller, smaller guys too. It's just, I don't know if it's wrestling makes them smaller or that smaller people gravitate towards wrestling because maybe they're not as big for football. I'm not sure which one came first. But um, yeah, I mean, to your point though, like, when you have people who are kind of stuck in their rut and you going away to something to better yourself threatens them, they're going to hold you back. And so it was probably a really easy way to understand who your true friends were and weren't at that point in time. It was. And I've had people come back over the years and reach out to me just to apologize. Um, wow. Which is really, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, <clears throat> that's, someone who does that to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to them. Mm-hmm. For me, that's like, no, that's that's a classy human being. That might be somebody I, I want to have in my life. So that's happened multiple times. And I definitely learned a few things going through that. Like, you can't look around and try to bolster support. You're not selling an idea. Um, that's not going to help you. <clears throat> like, if I had sold the idea of like, hey, I'll die before I quit. And, you know, I'm so tough and all this stuff. And everybody buys in on it. Well, that's not going to actually help me when I get there. It's actually meaningless. It's pointless. Um, so other people's opinions just don't really don't matter. You, you, you're going to need support from certain people. You know what I mean? Doing it alone is really challenging and, and you want to find some influential people in your life that are going to, that you can lean on for accountability and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's never going to be the majority and it shouldn't. I mean, that's, we, we don't need to ask permission to the people around us to go out there and grab our dreams, you know, by the horns. That's not, that's not real. So that that same kind of you know curiosity and um, ambition that that you take to the game, that you take to the mat, that you take to wrestling, that you take to um, all these things in your life from an early childhood development perspective that make you the man that you are. Well, you got to hang on to those things and apply them into the new context. What other could, direction can I smash through? You know, and I've had multiple barriers all throughout. You know, especially just getting to SEAL training in the military. Um, and then actually getting through that program, you know, I've had so many barriers, so many roadblocks my way. And I've, I've learned that like, there's a couple different ways, maybe three different ways to, to handle those. You know, if you've got a barrier, man, you might be able to blast right through it. You might be able to go over it or maybe you can go around it, but those are your only options. Like you can't <laughs> stop. Right. That's not, that's not one of the options. Um, so so yeah, what, I learned that at a young age, and then you know, once I got to field training, that's when um, I really got to apply some of the mental toughness techniques that I'd, I'd grown up practicing in athletics. You know, absolutely. And what what is it like once you get in there to get to the seals? I've always been fascinated by that. So you you drop out of college, you enlist, you go through the basic training, and then like after that what is it, two-month, three-month basic training, can you go right to SEALs, or how does that all work? Um, yeah, well, there's two different ways of looking at it. There's what is now, and then there's what was then. So the process has changed a little bit. For me, I went to boot camp, had to screen, take the screen test, which is pretty easy. It's something like 10 pull-ups, 
you know, 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, something like that. Mile and a half run. Um, there's a little bit of a swim in there. But, like, it really is, like, you need to pass that before you should even go <laughs> because that's nowhere near as hard as what you're going to be doing day in and day out. So it's almost like a kindness that they that they have you take the screen test, you know. Um, <laughs> so you do that boot camp. Then I went to an A school with the Navy um, in Virginia Beach studying, like, radar stuff. Um, which was a job I never did, you know, but you had to be prepared to do a job and then you go to SEAL training so that when you don't make it through SEAL training, you can go back to that job because the attrition rate is so high. Um, you know, the vast majority of the people that show up to that training aren't going to be successful. So they would give you a school to fall back on, um, gotcha. with a skill set that you could fall back on before you went to SEAL training. So that's what I was looking at. Nowadays, it's different. You, they That A school is kind of built into the same place at boot camp and prepares you to, for, I think they even do dive physics and stuff now, and then a lot of workout stuff that prepares you for SEAL training. So it's probably better. Um, but I'm partial to the, to the way it used to be just because it had to come from within. Like nobody was holding your hand. You were really kind of on your own with it, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um but no worries. That, that's just the way it is now, you know. So I had to spend two months doing a job that I didn't want to do, didn't plan on ever coming back to before um, BUDS. So trying to stay in good physical shape while you're spending nine hours a day learning radar techniques and stuff was, was an interesting time of life. So by the time I actually got there and I could smell the air, you know, I could run on the beach with the, the sand in my toes, meeting people that I was going to be going through hell with. Um, man, I was ecstatic. I was on cloud nine just to, just to show up, you know? <laughs> was there any doubt in your mind that you wouldn't make it through? Yeah, absolutely. I never thought about, even when it, when it got really challenging, like in hell week, um, I never really thought about quitting or anything like that. I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to pass the tests, that I wouldn't be able to pass the timed evolutions. Um, and that was very, I almost didn't ran. I mean, I got rolled back. I struggled with swimming. Mm. So every week you got to do a two mile open ocean swim um, with a buddy. And <laughs> yeah, every week. <laughs> and oh my the times God. are, and the times are fast. There's no lane. So you're sitting there in the middle of the ocean, just picking your head up and looking at where the direction you should be going. And then you put your head down and swim. So sometimes you're doing diagonals. It's a very challenging thing, especially for a little guy doesn't have quite as much real estate, you know, to, uh, to move the water with your legs. Um, right. So I really struggled with swimming and I, I spent most of my days just so scared that I wasn't going to be able to hack it and make the times that like the thought of quitting just didn't even, didn't even cross my mind. Plus I was in the Smurf crew. So, you know, you have to kind of be similar height to the people that you're working with. In SEAL training, because a lot of it, you're lifting up these telephone pole-like logs, you're running with both on your head, um, and, and the, the height dispersion there really matters, because if someone's really tall and someone's really short, it doesn't work. Um, so they put you in a height line, and you get separated into teams by your size. So for me, I'm with all the, the little scrappers, you know? Like, these guys have been... Nothing's ever been handed to them easy. They, they'll claw tooth and nail for anything that comes. Can't get them down. <laughs> you know, the worse <laughs> it gets, the harder it is, the colder it is, the better the jokes are. Just such a fun group of guys. 
So getting to go through with the Smurf crew was, was cool too. You know, I think that kind of gives you a little bit of an advantage when levity, when, when you, when you can look at something and laugh, um, it's amazing what that can do. I, th- I think there's two ways to use humor when you're meeting a challenge. Um, you know, one of them is mockery, which is essentially to take the challenge and bring it down to your size, bring it down to your level. And that's dangerous because sometimes you're just not respecting the challenge for what it is. Um, bringing it down might be a lie. You might be lying to yourself. So mockery is dangerous, but then you have levity, which is essentially rising to the situation, mm. um, rising to mass the situation. And, and when you can approach, you know, a situation like that to where you're, you're not you know, going to sleep for six days, you're putting on over 200 miles, running with boats, freezing water the whole time. Just the worst environment imaginable is Hell Week. Um, when you can do that with a bunch of guys that don't mind looking at the demon and laughing, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sounds like a bunch of maniacs. I love it though. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not only people quitting because of the challenge, but people are also timed out because they're just not fast enough. I never realized that. I thought if you could make it through it, you're golden. That's not the case. Yeah, no, it's definitely not the case. Um, it kind of is. It is because you spend so much time there that if you're struggling with something, you know, you're going to get better. Like there's guys who show up and they have a hard time passing the run times in the first phase of the program. But, you know, maybe they're just barely passing. And then after about, you know, another month or so, now they're they're screaming through it. So, you know, if you can stick stick around long enough to refine your times, you're probably going to be okay. But it happens all the time. I mean, sometimes some of the best guys, and they'll go away. I mean, they're tough as nails, but they'll go away because they couldn't do this one function. Wow. Like in, in second phase, which is the diving um, portion of it, a lot of water work, the worst evolution in that training is in second phase. You've already made it through Hell Week. They know you're not going to quit. You know, you're a perfect candidate for to, to be a SEAL, you know. And then they throw this evolution on you that is called treading water. It's five minutes in the deep end of a pool with a weight belt on, oh. full dive tanks, and you have to tread water for five minutes with your hand out of the out of, hands out of the water. If your hands touch the water, you fail. So for five minutes, and then you have to swim, you know, fifty meters on one direct on one side, fifty meters coming back. I mean, the whole time you just feel like you're gonna die. How dead are you when you're doing that? Just exhausted. For, you know, I've seen guys scream through it and they jump out and they're like, no worries, man, you know. Uh, but it's rare that somebody has that type body mass. Um, for the most part, people get out of there and they feel like they just died. It's it's extremely challenging. Oh, um, God. Oh, it's horrible. It's brutal. And you'll see some of the best guys and they go away for that for that evolution. And, and for me, I'm looking at them like, what a waste. Like, what a waste. You already invested so much money in this guy. But guess what? The rebuttal to that argument is, hey, we have a standard. You're going to meet the standard. It's not a popularity contest. Can you do it or can't you? And that one, we're going to war. That one you know, you feel we're like not going to relax the standard. You feel like that one's just more mental suffering. Can you endure the suffering versus can you swim in a certain amount of time? Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. It just seems like, I mean, who can endure the most pain on that one? Because most people at that point probably could do it. It's just, are they willing to go there? I, I can't even imagine, yeah. you know? So once you get into, once you get the letter that says, hey, you're, you've been invited to, um, to Buds, you get there. And how long is Buds in, in total? 
Um, it depends. I think in-dock is like four or six weeks or something like that. And then once you get into first phase, it's six months. Six months. And then where at in that in that window does Hell Week fall? Yeah, you're probably there for nine. Um, but you're you're wrapped up in the big training for for six of it is is hardcore. And Hell Week is it depends. They they've changed it, you know, every once in a while they'll do it three weeks in the first phase, sometimes they'll do it four, sometimes five. I don't know where they just ran a Hell Week a couple weeks ago, but I don't I don't remember where it's at right now. But just imagine you show up for first phase, you have two weeks where you're actually getting off at night. It's late, you know, but you're waking up in the morning at four or so and then, you know, getting beat up on all day and in a good way, you know, mm-hmm. I guess I could probably find a better way to say that, but no, just re- grueling training. Um, yeah. And then you're done that night and you get to, you get to rest. So you do that for two weeks and then you go into hell week where it's game on, no sleep whatsoever. You're going 24 hours a day. So, I mean, you say that no sleep whatsoever, and I've, I'm fascinated by the Navy SEALs, and I've heard a, a number of podcasts from or with Navy SEALs. But, you know, so w- for the folks who don't know what that is, you know, m- you go to bed Sunday night, and Monday when you wake up is Hell Week. What are you doing all that time, and are you literally not sleeping or eating for the whole week? Oh, you eat quite a bit. Okay. As, as far as the different selection processes for uh, special operations. I, I think, you know, SEALs and Hell Week probably eat more than any other group <laughs> going through their crucible. Um, you eat quite a bit. But, yeah, from a sleep perspective and everything else, like you said, you fall asleep on, on Sunday night. They wake you up, you know, later on that evening with gunfire and everything else, and, and it begins. Um, so you're in and out of the water, you know, sand everywhere, and then you get your boats and you start running with the boats on your head. Um, you'll do a base tour just all over the base. You go to a place called uh, Steel Pier and jump in the water, and they got hoses. They're hosing you down. It's just the coldest you've ever been. Um, oh. Maybe it's like 2 in the morning at that time. Yeah, and then you just keep moving, and you keep going. Sun comes up Monday, um, and you realize you're just getting started. And I always ask people when I'm speaking, too, because I'm, I'm a public speaker, right? So one thing I'll ask people is, hey, what, what day of Hell Week do you think people quit? So I'm curious, what would you guess? Like you're going from Sunday night until Friday afternoon. So what day do you think people usually quit? I would guess Monday at one o'clock. Nailed it. Yeah, hundred percent. Monday between like one in the afternoon and uh, and the sun going down at night, people just start dropping because you realize how far you have to go um, and how hard it already is, how tired you already are. And when you start looking at the finish line, man, it just, it looks like too much. You know, it looks like way too much. Um, <clears throat> throughout the entire week, I say you don't sleep at all. On Thursday night or Thursday, they actually let you lay down for like an hour. But it was the worst evolution by far. Because they, they let you lay down, maybe you doze off, and then they come over and wake you up. And they're like, hey, hey, go get wet. Go get wet. <laughs> you always talk back a little bit because you're completely out of it. You're like, shut up, man. I'm going, I'm sleeping, you know? And then they get on the bullhorn and they wake you up. So you, so they put you in that state where you're almost about to relax and then they get you back up and you're in the water and it's grueling again. Oh, it was the Holy worst. Holy shit. Brutal. But so like yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're going off of almost no sleep. Um, now, outside of the physical training, are you, do, like, what else are you doing? Because, I mean, you can't work out for 24 hours in a row. 
I mean, maybe you can, but like, what else are you guys doing besides the like the physical aspects of it? Well, it's all somewhat physical, but I guess the the water stuff kind of goes mental. Um, they have a ratio, so they'll put you in the water. You know, you link arms with your buddies, walk out into the ocean, lay down on your back, and just get blasted in the face by waves for a while. And uh, it's freezing cold, so they'll have a time that they'll they'll put you out there. Um, and then when guys start, you know, getting close to hypothermia, then they'll yank you out of the water and get you back under a log, back under a boat, back working out. Um, and then you kind of get, you know, beat up on in that way for a little while. And then as soon as you're really warm, they'll throw you back on the water. So you're always from getting surf tortured, um, in the water to, to doing stuff on land, you know, warming up, warming up the heater. But there's no downtime like, hey, let's all sit down and take five, you know? None of that. Um, Jesus. None of that. No. It's just, which is actually a good thing because after, after Wednesday or so, I think you're like clinically insane, you know, because you're completely without sleep. So your super ego gets completely broken down and you're just gritty and authentic and raw and you're going to say whatever you're thinking. Um, and at that point, you realize that if you stop even to eat, it's just miserable because your body starts slowing down. So you have to keep going. Holy shit. You can't lose that momentum or else it's just, you pay the man. I mean, it's brutal. So it's better if you stay in a few, if you keep moving around, you know, it it keeps you awake. Like when you jump in the water and then you're back out of the water, you're actually less miserable because you're not struggling with the sleep. Like you would, it's more miserable sitting down at that point than it is to keep going, which is kind of a nice metaphor for life, you know? Once you have that momentum and you want to keep cruising, you're going to get there a lot faster if you stay in your flow state. You know, if you're reading and reacting, if you're just moving forward, if you think about the next step. And that's the trick with Hell Week. That's how you make it through. The guys who quit on Monday, their problem is they're looking at the end. They, they're thinking about how long they have to go. You know, they're, they're working. They're, they're looking more at the outcome than the process, right? Um, the best trick you can use, like starting Monday trying to get through the rest of the week is you break, you take something really large and then you break that down into smaller, more attainable chunks. Right. So instead of thinking, Hey, I got to get to Friday. I got to make it through this thing. Instead, you can just tell yourself, Hey, I got to get to the next meal because they're going to feed me. It's going to be warm. I'm going to be sitting with my friends. You know, it's, it's going to be fantastic. All I have to do is get to the next meal. And as long as you're thinking in smaller chunks like that, you're not going to get intimidated by the whole. Now I'll be the first to admit there's times, when just thinking about the next meal is too much. That's too hard. It's too far away. I don't know if I can get to the next meal. So you can break that. If that's too big, break that down into a smaller, more attainable chunk. Now it's like, hey, yeah, we're doing log PT right now, and I hate these logs, but all I have to do is make it another 20, 30 minutes, and this is going to be over, and we're going to be back on the boats. You know, you break it down. Sometimes, hey, in that log PT, Maybe that's too much. Maybe getting to the end of that log PT is something that seems too far away and it's unattainable. Well, guess what? If we're working shoulders right now, oh, all I got to do is make it another 10 more reps because they can't work our shoulders forever. We're going to be working legs. My legs are fresh. All I have to do is get to legs. It works all the way down to next step. Just take one more step. Right, right. So when something is too big, you break it down into smaller, more attainable chunks. And then when you make it through those wickets, pat yourself on the back. Put the check on the board. Tell yourself you did a great job. And then look out and and find another wicket that's attainable and say, check, now all I have to do is that. It keeps you in this flow state. It's positive. 
instead of death by a thousand cuts, it's success by a thousand wins, right? I love that. And man, I mean, and you would know, right? You've been there. And so that mentality obviously helped you get through it. But before we move on past Buds, I'd love to know, like, what was rock bottom or the low point for you where this was the worst you've ever felt? And, and then similarly, what's it like Friday when you're done? You just sleep for two days or like, do they give you some time off? Uh, yeah, you get, you get done. They got pizza sitting there waiting for you. you. You get to put on a brown shirt. You were wearing a white shirt. You get to put on a brown shirt. That's something that you take so much pride in. I mean, almost as much pride as a trident because there's such a difference between yeah, guys running around the base there, you know, wearing a white shirt. It's like, okay, well, we don't know who you are, but as soon as you're wearing a brown shirt, you're tough, period, you know? Um, so it feels fantastic. And then, yeah, you get, you get the weekend. They put medical staff on you. It's actually very dangerous. Um, so you're doing medical checks the entire time. You're, I think you're allowed to leave. I think we went and watched a movie, um, the next day, but you're, you're pretty much there. You know, there's a lot of doctors looking after you. Um, for me, I expected to pass out and sleep for 24 hours, but, Instead, I passed out and I slept for like three, and then I was up. There was nothing I could do, so I went out to the commons space, and we had a TV out there, and there were three of us that were all struggling with the same thing. And so we sat there and watched TV all night. Holy I mean, it took me it took me a while before I could actually sleep. It's so counterintuitive, and I don't understand physio- physiologically how that would happen, but it did. Yeah, it was bizarre. Plus, how sore were you? I mean, unbelievably sore. <laughs> I mean, if I run 10 miles and I'm not ready for it, I'm sore. I mean, how much? I mean, you had to run a couple marathons minimum that week. Well, you know, what's interesting is the muscle soreness and everything pales in comparison to the fact that you have so much sand on your body for that entire week that your skin is rubbed off. So, like, in between my thighs were just blood. I mean, oh, there was no skin. So, it's, it's brutal. Like you, you, you always know when someone just made it through hell week because they're like waddling down the road, you know, balls in one hand, <laughs> like trying not yep, to hurt. Yep. <laughs> it hurts so bad. And that, that went on for another, you know, week and a half or so. I could feel it. Um, the following week in training, it's called walk week. So you walk everywhere. You wear tennis shoes. Um, you still do a lot. You know, there's still a lot of instruction, but a lot of it's, um, you know, academic. And then a lot of walking around. And then one week after that, though, so one week after Hell Week, you go full bore again. Back I mean, yeah. Game on. Yeah, you get one week to recover. And what's the first hour of your day in Buds besides Hell Week? Like, ignoring Hell Week, what's like the normal first hour of your day after you passed it? What time do you wake up and et cetera? Yeah, the the normal uh, first hour of your day is going to be you know, you wake up, it's still dark outside, and then you have some collateral duties. So maybe you have to, maybe your job this week is to, to sweep the hallway or, you know, do something, make something look nice. Maybe you were standing watch all night and you just got off watch, um, which means you were, you were sitting there in a chair answering the phone when people call in or watching the front door, you know. Um, so maybe you just got off watch and now you have to go train. So it's it's always stuff behind the scenes. Maybe you're you're freaking out about your room and you're trying to clean your room as good as you possibly can to pass an inspection. 
Um, by the time you actually get to the point where the instructors are yelling at you and you're running to the surf and back and working out and all that, you've probably been awake for a few hours doing other stuff. That's, that's one of the brilliant parts of that program. They keep you miserable by giving you so much to do, even when you're not training. Mm. It's brilliant. Wow. I mean, it's designed so well. It's, it's unbelievable that the standard hasn't fallen over, over the 30, 40 years, right? It's as tough or tougher than it's ever been. And they don't, they don't move the bar for that. And man, it's just amazing to, to think that, that a human being could get through that. It really is. Um, and it puts things in perspective. Like, you know, I, I'm a big guy of saying I have to have eight hours of sleep. And if I get five, sometimes I feel sorry for myself. But it's like, dude, get some perspective, man, on what's really going on out there. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting how <clears throat> I didn't know either going into it, you know. I mean, there were times where even though I was well prepared, I was like, wow, I did, I'm glad I didn't know about that. <laughs> you know, once you get to the other side of something, you look back and like, kind of glad I didn't know. Um, you know, it's interesting, but one of my biggest pet peeves nowadays when I'm, when I'm talking to people and they tell me like, dude, I could never do what you did. To me, I always look at them and I'm like, Why, how do you know? Why would you say that? Why would like, you don't, say don't that? Don't put yeah. that on yourself. Yeah. yeah, like, you you have no idea, dude. I'm tiny. Like, not only could you do what I did, but you could probably do it better. <laughs> you know? I always tell people that. Um, it's just we put these limitations on ourselves because we've never been exposed to it in the past. That's why a lot of a lot of fields out there um, have companies and are doing public speaking. And, and you know, there's a few, everybody kind of says a couple of similar points that just resonate with us as a community, and you're going to hear it from you know, most of the seals that are out there. And one of them is to do something that sucks every day. If, if you stay used to being uncomfortable, like if, if being uncomfortable is, is, is normal for you, is comfortable for you, um, it's just a nice little skill set. And that's something that you don't have to be a seal to practice. But like every day, think about something that's, that's going to make you really uncomfortable and then do it. Build, build a habit on attacking something um instead of withdrawing from it like one day i'm not i'm not talking real you know like cold shower type stuff um maybe but maybe it's a workout that's really going to push you maybe it's a conversation that you've been needing to have with someone for a long time and it makes you uncomfortable you know those are the things if something's making you uncomfortable then that's a great indicator that it's probably something that you should do and if you practice that every single day do something that sucks then you keep that mental edge um and that's one thing that I've really taken with me because I've been out of the military for some time now, contracted for a while after that. But, um, you know, I want to make sure that's a piece of myself that I really want to hang on to um, as I move forward. So I've been pretty diligent about keeping myself as uncomfortable as possible so that I can continue to grow. You know, I don't want to get soft. No, I mean, and there's, there's ways to do it with working out. Uh, one of the things you just said that kind of rang in my head was having uncomfortable conversations i'm in sales and that's certainly a thing there where you know i would much rather do a hard workout than, than have a conversation with someone that you know is going to be it's going to be tense or it's going to be uncomfortable so i hear you loud and clear there outside of working out and having having a hard conversation does anything else come into mind in terms of ways you use to get uncomfortable or to challenge yourself every day um, yeah, for me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an extreme personality, so take this with a grain of salt, but 
I've always been a big fan of, of stand-up comedy. You know, I think that it's it's one of the last forms of free speech in America right now. Um, and then I, I, as a craft, it's just, I just respect it. You know, like Jerry Seinfeld has a, a joke where he says, um, the number one fear in America is, is public speaking. Number two is death. Which means at any given you uh, any given funeral, the average person would rather be in the casket than performing the eulogy. I love that joke, and I think it's so true. People are usually afraid of public speaking, and I get afraid of it as well. And I was sitting here saying a similar point on a podcast with a buddy, talking about if something's intimidating you, then it's it's a good indicator that you should do it. And later that night, a friend of mine called me out, who was there at the taping, and he says, "Nick, you've been talking about stand-up comedy." your entire life and you haven't done it. Why? And I was like, yeah, because I'm intimidated. I need to do stand-up comedy. So in that moment, I was like, you're right. Check. Got me. So I hit up a buddy of mine at the comedy store and, uh, and who, who I've, I've never done a comedy. You know, I just happened to know the guy and I was like, Hey, I want to do this set. And he sets it up to where, you know, I'm going to go do a comedy set at the comedy store in Beverly Hills, huge venue. You know, never done comedy before. And that was my first set. And I went in there and, and hit like seven minutes or so. That's a and long time for your first one. It's, it's a long time. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. It went well. It went well. Um, Have you done but it made sense? me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to be at the Ice House here next week, too. So now I'm doing a Friday night. Um, that was on a Monday night. So this is, it's growing. You know, it's fun. It's just something that, I found that it was intimidating me, something I knew I would probably enjoy, but I, there's a barrier to entry and that barrier to entry was me. And I had to, I had to crash through it and, and see what it's like. And now sure enough, having a great time, probably going to keep doing it. Wow. But that's just an example. That's just an example. Like, you know, anyone who's listening right now, something they're thinking about something and whatever that something is that you can't get off your mind, maybe it's playing more guitar Maybe it's pursuing a relationship. It's probably going to be getting over yourself on some level. Um, yep. Do it. Shut up. Do it now. Man, you know? and you, uh, what's amazing is, you know, you went to a place that's the the godfather of comedy, the, the house of comedy is the, is the comedy store, man. So you didn't <laughs> go to like a low-key place. You went to the place to go. Um and man, you're mentioning two spots where my hero Joe Rogan hangs out. Man, have you ever yeah. had a chance to interact with that guy? Yeah, I got to meet him um, a little while ago. Buddy, I'm a friend of a friend, kind of thing uh, through the podcast stuff. Um, it was quick. It was like this friend of mine. He's really cool because he's introduced me to a bunch of really fun people. Like I got to um, hang out with Tim Ferriss for about 20 minutes and ran some ideas by no him. Way. Got to hang out. Yeah, it was cool. I liked him. Um, got to hang out with Joe behind the store for for a few minutes, you know. Um, but that's that's about it. Like he and I aren't aren't good buddies. I haven't really met him organically. Um, that was kind of an introduction. But yeah, it's it's so fun when you start getting connected. Um, like we, we were talking about John Gordon earlier too. You know, you, you love his stuff, and and I couldn't agree more. He's just a phenomenal guy. You start meeting these guys that are out there and actually testing out their ideas and, and super influential. I think Joe Rogan's probably the most influential person in America at this point with his numbers and his reach. No question. Um, and he wrestled. It's hard to pigeonhole, too, like from everywhere. Yeah. Dude, he wrestled, black belt, 
jujitsu. The guy is a beast. Yeah. And he's over 52. Like, he's exactly how you want to hit this, you know? 100%, man. He, he's a legend. And I, I know we only have about five, five, six minutes left here. I wouldn't be doing it justice if we didn't hit on the contractor story. So maybe we can close with this. Um, so you, you obviously graduate <laughs> buds, you, you go on to have a 10 year career as a seal and then you get done and you, you do some contract work, which still really not sure what that, that means. And I know a lot of it's classified, but can you just hit on the story, the 24 hour window story you were telling, you were telling before? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to make a decision. Was I going to stay at 10 years? You know, are you going to stay and do 20 um, and get retirement or is it time to move on then because you still have time to build? So for me, I had some buddies doing some some squirrely stuff on the contracting side. Um, and it, it just sounded like a lot of fun for me. I'd never been um, to certain places that I really wanted to get to, you know, like I'd never been to Afghanistan. Um, and it was just killing me. And I was doing my odds, you know, if I stay in in the military, what are my odds? You know, am I going to wind up in the Philippines, <laughs> you know? And then I got this offer to do contracting and it was like, oh, no, you can choose where you go. That's where you want to go. Check. You can go there. Like, so I screened for that program. Um, similar numbers, like in, in BUDS, we started with like 220 guys, graduated 24 in uh, class 255. Um, the contracting program, it was we started with like 36 dudes that were all, you know, top notch from you know, all the special operations groups of any branch. Um, and I think we, 11 guys made it through. Um, I know that group, like six or seven were, were seals too, which I thought was cool. I like the ratio, <laughs> but, um, started, started doing it. So I got out of the military two weeks later. I'm in Afghanistan contracting. It was perfect. Um, so I'm doing this for a little while and I got cocky and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and go to business school at the time too. I'd already finished up my undergraduate while I was still in the Navy. Um, and I went to business school through university of San Diego. So I did that while I was contracting, which is a tremendous workload. And I'll never forget, like you heard this story, but you know, one day I had done all my research for a paper that was due the next day. Um, but I, it was, it was late. I wasn't going to be able to write it. So I was going to wake up early the next day, get the writing done and then submit it. So I go to bed and I wake up at, um, six in the morning the next day, but it wasn't to my alarm clock. It was to a vehicle born explosive device just outside my door. And we were staying in a place that wasn't what you'd expect, you know, as far as security. Um, and it just, it shook the walls. So I jumped out of bed, throwing my, my body armor, grab my gun, you know, which I always slept with. I didn't have a helmet. Um, so I just grabbed that stuff on, ran out to the, to the balcony and there were a bunch of guys, um, hanging out our, our local, local buddies. Um, and I was barking at them like, Hey, get over there to the gate, get over there to the gate. So they cruise over there and we're, we're talking, you know, they were 15 yards, but I was on a balcony and I, I told them to run, you know, 30 yards away and, and defend an area. That's how tight it was. So I run to the armory, grab a helmet and then get up on the roof to support them. And there's, there's bombs going off everywhere. It's, it's just, you know, crazy firefight. Yeah. It was turned into a 90 minute, uh, battle. And then for me, I think one of the strangest parts of it was there was a truck that was coming back from the gate that I had just ordered that, um, group to. 
and bunch of bunch of limp bodies laying in the back of the truck coming back and they were they were pulling them out and I'm watching this happen below me and that's where I realized it was the guys that I just sent over there. And they got lit up. So oh my God. really really tough position to be in. I mean one thing that that I learned in that moment is like you really do have to take ownership for your actions. If you're gonna leave one, I wasn't in charge. I wasn't in charge, but I was the only person in position to make that call. You know, that's one thing that I teach is leadership at every level. If you're looking around and you're wondering whose turn it is, who's going to step up? Yeah, it's yours. Step up, make a call. And that's where I was at. Made that call, got it to the top, and I realized what it was, and I took ownership of that. And listen, I've, I've played that out. I, I talked to friends. Um, you know, we, in our hot wash afterwards, we talked through it. And even though the implications of that were, were terrible and it's not something that makes me happy or gives me any amount of joy, it was necessary. And if I went back in time, I'd do it again. You, you have to take ownership of your actions right. and you have to understand that it's, it's not going to be easy. So that was an interesting moment, man. Um, but then the firefight goes on and we end up being ultimately successful you know, now we're clearing the, the compound multiple times just to make sure that, because these guys were crafty. I don't want to get too much into it, but it was a very sophisticated attack. I was impressed. Um, so, you know, after we, we sweep the area multiple times, now it's, it's further on into the day. It's already hot, summertime out there. And um, the guy who's in charge of that area calls me in and he's like, uh, he's like, hey man, one of, the, one of these guys is still like, you know, mortally wounded, but we got to get him out on Kazbek. We got to get a helicopter in to pull him out. So he asked me to get a little team together and, and get this guy out. Well, it was one of the guys, one of our local guys that had supported us. And uh, he'd been shot in the face, but was still alive. So obviously I rogered up because, you know, I was, I was part of it, you know, whatever I can do to, to save this guy, whatever I can do to help. Um, as I was getting tasked with that, uh, special forces, army special forces friend of mine, love the dude. I'd say his name, but he'd probably beat me up for it, man. I, I love this guy. He'd just been, he'd just been shot in the body armor, not an hour before this. And he's walking by and he goes, he goes, Nick, what are you on? Check, put me on it too. And keeps walking. I was like, that's the coolest Savage. thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Like nailed it. <laughs> so, so he jumps on it with me. And then two other guys, and we cruised out to the soccer field out in town. We're trying to get this guy out of there. And uh, now the sun's going down. You know, it's been a long day. There's, it's a lot going on. Um, and we get a call from the bird, the, the helicopter, and he's like, hey, we got to bump it. So it gets pushed to the right like an hour. Uh, so it's an hour later. This happens multiple times. This happens multiple times. So you're just sitting out and, there in a uh, field? Like in the midst of a oh, city yeah. that where a firefight just happened. You're just sitting out there. Yes. And yeah. It wow. was interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's kind of funny too is hanging out with four of your buddies and stuff in that situation. Like it's super sketchy and you're worried about it, but just the quality of the guys. You're telling jokes. You're talking about like business aspirations. Um, you know, you're distracting yourself. Hey, what book did you read? What did you like about it? Really good conversations, man. Like working with quality people, there's just nothing like it. That's that's my biggest takeaway from the contracting world is that I went from working with all seals to working with the best of the best in every category. And I, I really like that because it, it taught me 
you know, seals are a breed. Like we, we're all pretty similar. If you meet one of us, like you're going to know what the other one's going to be like the next one, even if those two guys have never met each other. Um, we're very similar, almost cultish. Like it's, it's interesting, just same cloth. And I think it's the water that does it. But, um, when you work with people from other backgrounds, you realize that, you know, you're not different, you're specialized. And when, when that specialty comes from an area that isn't yours, it has more value. And so building like a good team that for me, I learned a lot because I learned to see other people as an asset for their strength, especially when that strength was different than my own. So one of the guys that was on that team was uh, Air Force combat controller, CCT guy. And those guys are phenomenal. And when it comes to comms work and talking to birds and organizing that, I was so glad that I had him on the team there. Um, so it's, it's, it was a good lesson for me. But we finally got this guy out of there. So helicopter comes, lands. We get him out of there, and, and he goes to, you know, a nice hospital, and he's good to go. So we, we did our job. Man, it felt fantastic. Um, I left, One piece of the story that I left out was after I got tasked to, to get that guy out of there that night, and after the firefight was over, <clears throat> I had realized that I still had a paper due. So <laughs> I... I went back to my room and I emailed the professor and I said, Hey, can I get into it? You know, OPSEC, but it's, it's a big day. It's a tough day. I'm going to need you to trust me on this one. Can't get it done. I can't get it to you today. So I had sent off that email. Then I left and did this overnight mission. So now I'm coming back from the longest day. Oh my gosh, man. Mm. Um, brutal. Come back to a base that's half destroyed, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay. So I, I walk up to my room, I collapse into the chair, and I'm like, oh no, I have a paper. So it's now it's like eight in the morning or so. That is the following day. Haven't slept. Brutal. Get onto my email, and the professor says, listen, I understand 100%. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, I can give you a 24 hour extension, but after that, it'll be a zero. And I looked at the clock from when I sent the email the day before. I'm like, I got four hours to write this thing. Oh. <laughs> I got to jam out a paper. Man. So instead of going to bed, instead of relaxing, instead of taking a load off, instead of feeling sorry for myself, I wrote a paper, man. Because I'll tell you, the enemy had taken enough from me that day. They'd taken life. They'd taken energy. Um, they had taken so much. I wasn't going to let them take my grade. That wasn't going to happen. I got my paper done. I submitted it. And I got a decent grade on my paper. There was an enemy. The enemy was active. Yes, it was a hard day. Check. Now that's over. I'm not going to let you take my grade. Man, that's so a was, powerful oh. story. Powerful story, Nick. Um, as we wind down here, I just want to give you a chance to, to kind of plug what you're doing now with your public speaking and, and the book you wrote. And then just the final sign off is a few uh, a sentence or two on how, you, how wrestling changed your life, man. Thank you again for, for taking the time. But how can people get in touch with you and... And, uh, yeah, how did the sport impact you? Yeah, so I guess what I'm doing right now is I have a company, EliteTeams.com. So I work with, you know, athletes. I've worked with professional athletes, but all the way down to the high school level. Man, I just love it. And then I work a lot in the corporate space as well. So I'm available as a keynote speaker, come out, talk for an hour. Um, or what I, what I prefer is, is to spend some time with teams. Um, I specialize in developing uh, unit cohesion. 
So getting a group of people that are solid performers to come together and, and unite as a team. That's, that's what I do. My book is called Elite High Performance Lessons and Habits from a Former Navy SEAL. It's about the individual, how to structure your life. Maybe you didn't get to go to a boot camp. You know, maybe you don't have that structure that you see in other people's lives. This is a, a different way of looking at your life um, and how you can be the right guy for the job, maybe even before you have it. Working on my next book right now, which is Elite Teams. So looking forward to that. And then, of course, doing stand-up comedy. So keep an eye out for me in L.A. <laughs> um, social media, I'm at Nick Hayes Life. So definitely reach out to I'll hit you back on the DMs and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, in a nutshell, after playing team sports my entire life, having a sport that I could put my foot on the line and wait for the whistle to blow, nobody was coming to help me out. It was just me and the other person. It was going to be hard. It was going to be long, and I wanted to win. That gave me the mindset to move forward and to accomplish some pretty amazing things in my life. Powerful, Nick Hayes, man. That well said, and I I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. I know the audience will appreciate it, and we wish you nothing but the best, man. Thanks again. All right, thanks so much, Ryan. Take, Take care, care, brother. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.